I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. My success has been a miracle. One of the many beauties of P.T. Barnum's copybook letters from 1845 to 1846 is that they provide insights into Barnum's attitudes toward money, just at the point in his life when he had become incredibly rich. Partly due to the range of people with whom he corresponded, we have the opportunity to learn about greedy family members and acquaintances, employees asking for larger salaries, talent who felt entitled to ridiculously favorable contracts, and even the financial aspirations of Barnum's trusted manager of the American Museum. Not surprisingly, Many of the copybook letters touch upon money matters, and while Barnum seems to have had a generous nature, the barrage of demands, some with merit, some without, was at times exasperating to him. Were I to give what all relations and others think at this moment, it is my solemn and bounden duty to give to them, I should this night be bankrupt for half a million of dollars. Of note is a long letter, largely about money, to Fortis Hitchcock. Barnum's manager of the American Museum. In this correspondence, dated September 12, 1845, Barnum reveals his own feelings about money, 
as he responded to Hitchcock's apparently unfounded expectation that Barnum would, perhaps soon, sell the museum to him. In this letter and others, Barnum makes clear his belief that there is virtue only by earning one's wealth, and folly in accepting any large sum from another, since one would become beholden to that person. We'll delve into that letter in a minute, but first let's turn to a family letter in which we learn that 12-year-old Carolyn Barnum had been telling tales to her father, repeating news which Charity had neglected or chosen not to tell her husband. Apparently, letters home were often shared with others, but regarding certain matters, Barnum warned that the extra page included with his August 25th letter to Charity was not to be circulated. He prefaced it, This leaf is for your private eye only, and then went on to say, Carolyn writes that Uncle Allenson Taylor has set up his son in business and lost all his capital. I shall write him on the subject, but shall not tell him where I got my information. He has given me such solemn promises and such security that I feel confident he will pay me all that I have lent him. But I shall lend no more to friend or foe without good bond and mortgage security. In fact, Barnum had been very careful in regard to managing family money matters in his absence abroad. Instructing Hitchcock not to give money to anyone but Charity or his mother without his written order. That instruction in itself had generated hard feelings when Uncle Allenson had stepped in to get money for a much-needed carriage for Barnum's mother, and Hitchcock flat-out refused the request, following the instructions he'd been given to a T. Barnum found himself smoothing things over, assuring Hitchcock he appreciated his attentiveness to duty while calming his uncle, telling him that Hitchcock had only acted upon strict orders in denying the request, not because of mistrust. To Charity, Barnum explained, Hitchcock writes me that he will always guard my money and not let a cent go without having documents to show for it, so that in case of my death, he could have everything plain and satisfactory. In the meantime, ill feelings had been brewing among the relatives, who felt they were owed a piece of Barnum's riches. In the private leaf, Barnum told Charity, Carolyn writes me that some person told her that I had ought to give a certain person half my profits. If this is the feeling which some folks have, I think the best plan would be to build our house on Staten Island, or at Harlem, or in some place up the North River, and not build in Bridgeport at all. You know who I mean. If my relations begrudge me what I have worked so hard to earn, we had better get farther away from them, for I will not support them nor let them suppose that I shall keep giving to them unless they are in great necessity. A more explicit description of the incident is included in Barnum's letter to Hitchcock. Only two steamers ago, I had the news that a certain child, ten years old, told another child of the same age that the former child's father said that I ought to give him half I made on General Tom Thumb. The person making that demand was undoubtedly Philo Barnum, an older half-brother living in Bridgeport, where the Stratton family and their remarkable little boy who had stopped growing at six or seven months of age, also lived. Accounts differ as to which of the two brothers first learned of young Charlie, but all concur that Philo had a hand in it, as he brought the boy and his parents to a hotel in Bridgeport for Barnum to meet the family in November of 1842. At the time, 
Philo surely never imagined the fame and fortune his half-brother would eventually reap as a result of that meeting with the soon-to-be General Tom Thumb. As for Barnum's reaction, he told Hitchcock, When I heard that, I was sick of the avarice and unreasonableness of the world, and sincerely wished that my family and every farthing of my property was on this side of the Atlantic, in which case I would have taken a solemn oath never to live the other side. Other more distant relatives were also surfacing at this time, appealing to Barnum for a piece of the pie. He had been sending money to his recently widowed sister Mary on a regular basis, and somehow word got around. Again to Hitchcock, he wrote, The fact is, if I have a poor widowed sister and give her a few dollars, then upstart instantaneously 560 second, third, and fourth cousins, who wonder why I should not give to them as well as to my sister, who is in good health and able to earn her own living. If I have an aged and decrepit mother, and wish to remove a thorn from her dying pillow, the air is filled with sprites, claiming a blood relation, and bloodsucker-like, the right to fill themselves to repletion from my effects. It is absolutely enough to make a man Turk and disown his relatives and acquaintances forever. Even mere acquaintances contacted Barnum with the hope of wringing money from him. With indignation, Barnum declared to Hitchcock, One person at present in America has said that I ought to present him 20000 Another really thinks I ought to give him at least 1000 a year. Another has repeatedly urged me to give him at least half the museum. Clearly, the unreasonable demands annoyed him. But to the point about Barnum's own attitudes toward money and his rapid and spectacular increase in wealth, his comments to close correspondence are enlightening. In a letter dated August 26, 1845, Barnum had quipped to showman friend Moses Kimball, I shall not be like Billy Gray and want a little more. I am determined to be content one of these days. But as Barnum discovered, being content was not in his nature nor many other people's when it came to money-getting. In his September 12th letter to Hitchcock, he confessed, I have once again been like you in one respect. That is, I have fancied that a man who has acquired $50,000 or $100,000 ought to be content, to give up all means he had of earning more, and indeed to spare a good slice from that already acquired. Barnum felt Hitchcock's self-acknowledged avarice had its value, noting, I am glad to see it, and only hope that principle may govern you in everyday life. Then you will do well enough. But he also saw the need to recalibrate Hitchcock's expectations of quickly acquiring a fortune, firmly advising him, You must do away with one idea, and that is the comparison of success, making my success the standard of comparison. My success has been a miracle, an accident, a wonder such as does not occur scarcely twice in a century, and it would be no more unreasonable for me to expect in two years to be an Astor or a Gerard than it is for you to expect to jump into the fortune which I did. Such accidents do not occur often, and it is wrong for you to expect it. At least, that is my opinion. He went further, diplomatically expressing his concern after reading Hitchcock's letter. I wish I did not fancy I saw a feeling of dissatisfaction expressed in your last letter. If such is really the case, I fear that dissatisfaction will necessarily be increased, for it is quite impossible, and you ought not to expect it, 
that you should get rich in an hour or a year, unless some person presents you with a fortune, which you ought not to wish, for you would be eternally that person's slave. It had been agreed that Hitchcock would receive one quarter of the profits of the museum for the first year of his service, thus creating an incentive for him to manage it well. He had succeeded admirably. Outside of that contract, Barnum had promised to put Hitchcock's interests ahead of anyone else's, should he, Barnum, decide to change the affairs of the museum. For some reason, Hitchcock thought that change was on the horizon. Barnum, on the other hand, said no such promise had been made, or even implied would happen in the space of a year, declaring, There is no probability that he would sell in the foreseeable future. Barnum then extended his hand to his friend and manager, saying, I am ready to have you earn an independence, and a quick one under its branches, or I am willing to join you in purchasing another tree, which may prove as good as this, or I will lend you money to purchase one on your own sole account. It is interesting to see this side of Barnum, a man who became incredibly rich, but also cared enough to help others succeed, so long as they were willing to do honest and hard work to achieve their goals. Becoming a First-Rate Showman By now, Monsieur Pinta is a name familiar to listeners of this podcast on Barnum's 1845-1846 letter copybook. Barnum had hired him to serve as interpreter for the General Tom Thumb entourage as they made their way through the countryside of France, and he often refers to Pinta in his letters. Usually, it was to give some guidance or specific instructions on what should be done when the entourage reached the next town. Perusing just a few such letters quickly reveals that Barnum liked to needle Monsieur Pinta, apparently because at some point Pinta had expressed disdain for the appellation showman, feeling it was beneath a man who had a university education. He was conflicted because he realized it would be hard to avoid that description of his work if he followed through on his intention to set up a museum in Paris. Barnum, himself a showman, seems to have taken the slight in good humor and relished opportunities to tease Pinta on the subject. Frequently, he refers to or addresses him either as Showman Pinta or as Aide-de-Camp Pinta. An Aide-de-Camp is a military officer who serves as a confidential assistant to a senior officer, so this was in keeping with the military titles Barnum assigned in jest to other members of the entourage. For instance, he often addressed Mr. Sherman, the young general's preceptor, as Commodore Sherman, and Sherwood Stratton, the boy's father, as Major Stratton. In a letter to Sherman written from Lyon on October 25, 1845, Barnum enclosed a letter of instructions to Monsieur Pinta, starting off with a compliment. You have now got to be a first-rate showman. There's no soft soap in this. And I now proceed to put some of the responsibilities of office upon your shoulders. If Pinta was hired at the time the entourage was departing Paris, By fall, he would have had three or four months' experience under his belt, and Barnum must have found him both reliable and able to work as a part of the team, particularly with Sherman and Stratton. Letters to Sherman and to Stratton often include instructions about having Pinta assist them. From Lyon on October 17th, Barnum wrote and asked Sherman, To send all the books of Petit Pousset that you can scrape together, and direct them to Monsieur Fleury, director de Grand Theatre, Lyon. 
If you have only one that is stamped by the minister at Paris, you must carry that with you to Toulon. But as soon as the manager has made use of it in Toulon, you must send it to Monsieur Fleury, as they can't play Petit Pousset here or anywhere else without first having a copy that is stamped to exhibit to the authorities. If you have two copies stamped, send one with the rest to Monsieur Fleury. If you have only one stamped, then send those which are not stamped and have Monsieur Pinta write to Monsieur Fleury that he will send him one stamped as soon as he gets to Toulon, and he must not fail to do so. These were followed by precise instructions on how the booklets were to be prepared for mailing, with paper crossbands to be put on firmly, still leaving a good part of the book uncovered so that the post office folks can see that it is a pamphlet. Barnum's enclosure to Pinta a week later provided all the particulars about getting the promotional printing done and distributed. Though Barnum said he was handing the responsibility over to Pinta, it sounds like he had done much of the groundwork. I wish you to take charge of the bill and newspaper printing in Lyon, of course, consulting with Mr. Stratton. I'll give you a list of the papers and tell you what I have done so far, and then you can judge what is necessary to do afterwards. Barnum followed with a list of six newspapers, detailing their publication frequency and advertising rates, between 25 and 40 sous per ad. A sou was one-twentieth of a franc. He also noted the dates and terms he had arranged, such as the first advertising on October 18th and 19th, then waiting until the 26th, after which they are to continue it every day till you stop it. A couple of the papers would publish the ads gratis, provided they were given billets, tickets. Barnum noted he had already given the journals billets for five persons each and instructed Pinta to renew them when you and Mr. Stratton think best. In addition to the newspapers, Barnum asked Pinta to take charge of the affiche, notices that could be posted or distributed as handbills. As seemed to be the custom in many or all towns, so Barnum informed Pinta, All the affiches are torn down every morning all over the town of Lyon, and, of course, new ones put up every morning. Barnum had arranged to have 300 large affiches printed, and 2,000 small ones, which he referred to as programs. The 300 large ones were to be parceled out in groups of 50, which Pinta would need to pay to have posted on six dates between October 20th and 29th. Then he and Stratton would decide on the 28th if more should be printed, and if so, the size and information to include. Barnum told Pinta the order for 2,000 small affiches might be sufficient, as he already paid the hotel's commissioner to distribute the present 2,000 among all the first families before you arrive, with General's little card inside each program. The Barnum Museum has several of General Tom Thumb's miniature calling cards with matching envelopes in the collection. Being tiny, just over an inch long, and finely printed, the cards are definitely something people would want to keep, though could easily lose. These miniature cards, as well as normal-sized cards, must have been a very popular giveaway, used throughout the period of Charles Stratton's career, 1843 to 1883, when calling cards were in common use. Unlike today's business cards, a calling card simply had the person's name on it printed in an elegant script or other elaborate font. Confident that Pinta could be trusted to fulfill his print promotion assignment along with his other duties, Barnum offered encouragement. I can just imagine the glint in Barnum's eye as he penned his closing words to Pinta in the letter of instructions. Kindly, 
but seasoned with another showman barb. Now, old fellow, go ahead. Use economy and judgment, and one of these days you will be rich and be known as the Prince of Showmen, especially after you have exhibited my mermaid and the petrified woman. As for Barnum's last quip, you may recall that we recently encountered the petrified woman in correspondence with Fortis Hitchcock. Barnum had been doubtful about its appeal to visitors to his American museum, but manager Hitchcock's judgment prevailed. The people came, the money rolled in, and Barnum was delighted, as this additional mention confirms. No doubt you are already familiar with Barnum's famous Fiji mermaid exhibit, which made quite a splash when it debuted in New York in 1842, so we'll leave it at that and let Monsieur Pinta get on with his work. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.